1: You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay and I'm Lynn Trafford presenting Rotary Wheels on behalf of the Rotary Club of Ahuriri Sunrise in Napier. This program is kindly sponsored by Glenn's Pharmacy in Taradale. Glenn's Pharmacy is a prescription dispensing pharmacy where high-need clients can have their prescriptions robotically packaged in individual sachets for each dose time. Talk to the friendly staff about this dispensing technique. Glenn's Pharmacy, Taradale. My guest today is Phil Crombie, a fellow Rotarian from my club, Ahureri Sunrise. I interviewed Phil in February 2018 about his granddad's World War I experiences on the Western Front, the flanders belgian border. The focus of that interview was the Battle of Messines. Phil has visited the UK and the area that was the Western Front several times as part of his family research. Today, we're going to discuss the Battle of Passchendaele, a battle that Phil Crombie refers to as New Zealand's deadliest day. To pick up the story, we go backwards in history to 1917 for Phil Crombie's take on Passchendaele. Hello again, Phil. Good morning, Lynn. (laughs) New Zealand's deadliest day. But to start that, Phil, you told me off air that Germany was one of the few countries in Europe in 1914, goodness, I keep going to say 2014, in 1914 that did not have an empire and that there was an impact to follow the fact that they did not have an empire. How did all this sit
0: well, it's sat, Germany being a very big country, as you say, had a very uh, basically a non-existent empire. If you think of countries like Portugal, tiny country, it had colonies and it, um, throughout the whole world, all over country, the place. Yep, yeah. The UK, um, Spain, uh, etc., and. As well, you had a very uh, federal system across Europe. You, know, you had the uh, the old families, as you would say, and there was a lot of tension in Germany and across the whole of Europe during that time. And really, it only took one spark to ignite all that, which was in Sarajevo and the assassination of uh, uh, the Archduke uh, Ferdinand and his wife, and basically that set off a, a whole course of events did, that ended up being World War I or, or as referred to as Great War.
1: The Great War, yeah, the Great War. I, I think we are so removed today from what happened in Europe a hundred years ago that it doesn't hurt us to be reminded of some of these facts. Do you th- feel that? Yes. It's a good thing yeah. to discuss it and to remember. Yeah.
0: Because what happened in World War One actually then flowed through to what happened in World War Two and the Cold War. So a lot of those issues right through to the end of the 20th century uh, probably stem back right to the beginning of the 20th century. They didn't go and away. The, the, the seeds that were planted then yeah. um, is, so you ended up probably with the, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union and the breakup.
1: Yeah, that's right, and we're going right back to the beginning of 1900 Mm. to to actually come forward. We're going to concentrate today, as I said, on Passchendaele, but of course it has an impact on everything all around it because pretty much in the middle where where we're going to focus on today. You described it as New Zealand's deadliest day, so we're going to go right back to the day, if you like, but before we do, can you geographically locate Passchendaele for us, so that people that have heard the name Zonks of times, but don't really know where it is, can place it.
0: Yeah, Passchendaele is almost, is fairly close to the French-Belgian border, probably inland, um, probably about 30k. So, Passchendaele was actually only a village, probably of about 500 people, uh, but it was one of the many villages spread across what was known as the lowlands, and in fact it sat on a ridge, and that made it so strategic. Uh, and we talk about the Battle of Passchendaele um, as that was the end destination, but it was actually the Battle of Passchendaele was made up of a whole series of different engagements, with the end result being uh, the capture of Passchendaele.
1: And the other battles that that we tend to come to mind, where do they sit? Are they close to Passchendaele, or are yes. they a long
0: way away? No, no, very close. Very You're talking close. probably a area of a circumference of no more than twenty. 20- Kilometres, because it's walking uh, distance. It's isn't walking it really? distance, uh, and in fact, that the uh, the major town in that area is called town called Ypres. Uh, n- it was right on the border. However, never captured by the Germany over the four years. Uh, and Passchendaele is probably about six miles from Ypres. Uh, and uh, a very strategic kind of area. This whole area was strategic, especially towards the end of the war, because. Um, the Allies were looking to kind of effectively push up uh, the coast, uh, the English coast, and effectively try and take out the submarine pens that Germany had built along the, uh, that coastline, as well as providing another area they could supply the front line um, in terms of ports uh, there. So very strategic area, this whole Flanders lowlands area.
1: Yeah we tend to have Flanders stuck in our mind yep. don't we yep. rather than maybe the individual battles, battles. we yep. remember the fields Fla- of Flanders, Flanders. Correct. what we're talking about here is October 1917 let's remind ourselves phil how many new zealanders actually there at that time, and how were they structured militarily?
0: So it was referred to as all the Kiwi soldiers were were referred to as the New Zealand Division, and that was made up of around about 20,000 soldiers at any one time. Uh, Bearing in mind over 100,000 soldiers came in and out of that division over the four years, uh, through different reinforcements coming from New Zealand and then obviously the wounded, etc., being repatriated back. So effectively you had uh, kind of f- the, the fighting part of the um, division was four brigades. They had about 2,000-odd soldiers in each of them, uh, then you had support of areas such as the artillery, which is a separate uh, kind of division. And then you had all the specialists, and it's all those people that uh, kept the wheels of the uh, the army going. Everything from engineers, the signalers, um, medical corps, veterinary corps, because you had so many horses. Horses, of course. Um, yeah. A postal service, dental, uh, you know, records, and and chaplains. So it, there was just you know, if, we, if you had eight thousand people actually fighting. You had t- nearly twice as many of those behind the lines supporting the, Look the fighting soldiers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of course, New Zealand wasn't just there by itself. I mean, there were other countries there in the same area at the same time, yep. not just New Zealand yep. sitting there. Yep. Who else was there with well, them, Phil?
0: Yeah, we sat along, uh, did quite a lot of stuff alongside the um, Australians. And of course, New Zealand first fought in Gallipoli, and as we know about the Anzacs. Yes. Uh, you know, right there in April uh, 15, left there December 15 uh, as a total failure. Uh, and then the New Zealand Division moved to um, the Western Front, and its first battle was in July 16, and it was on the Battle of the Somme, where it really got its, uh, it learned what fighting was really about. Because a nasty battle a again, nasty battle. Um You know, for example, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the British lost 20,000 dead. They did, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just just slaughter. You know, walking mm. in straight lines towards the enemy and and wondering why you're not being shot by machine guns is you know the hardest. Stupidest I know. Ever. I've
1: seen the battle, the memorial to the battle, mm. the dead yep. of the Battle of the Somme, Somme. in yep. England, and it's it's very moving, but it's mm. ghastly. You look yes. at all those. Thousands and thousands and thousands, mm-hmm. row upon row right. upon row of crosses, and you just yep. can't take it and all just, in. The Anyways, numbers are mind-boggling. So, we were, the there the, the yeah, were there with the New Zealanders, we were there with Australia, UK, Canada. Canada was Canada. alongside
0: it, um, and of course, the Irish fought separately. They were in, in there as well. So, I fed, we, a lot of the times, we uh, were alongside. Uh, the the Australians were normally on on one of our flanks, our left or right flanks, and most just about all the major battles. Yep.
1: So this was only going to last a few days, wasn't it? This this particular battle, this push yep. by the Kiwis to move up onto the ridge, yep. if we like. Can you step us through it? What what happens? How does it work? How does it all come together? Yep. Starting well, on well, day the, one, the, the, so the battle of past
0: Passchendaele actually started thirty first of July. And um, that was when there was this first push to take effectively this ridge line on which the Passchendaele sat on. Um, unfortunately, about three days later, it rained, and it rained, and it rained. It had the worst rain in history in that area, and that just turned the uh, the, the battlefields uh, that uh, into mud. And even worse, the areas in front of the front line, which had had a lot of bomb craters and and had been just churned over and if you as I say, if you imagine going out to the garden, digging a hole, pouring a few buckets of water in it, and then standing in it, and think of that ten times worse, and all you could see is mud so um, the rain started, and they kept going. the worst rain for um, for known history at that time were recorded uh, did everything from. Made it difficult to move. It clogged rifles. Tanks became bogged, uh, and eventually, men and horses drowned in it. That's how bad that whole area yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: I think that's why we, when we talk about Paschendale, that's what we think of, yep. isn't it? Oh, the mud. I know that New yep. Zealand lost a lot yep. of people in a very short period of time, but the photos that come to mind about Paschendale have all got mud in them.
0: Yes, yep. And that's probably the the single biggest area. Thinking that you know, these this area had been um, kind of fought over for three years. So you had, you know, it's been blown up, it had shells, it, you know, and uh, a number of photos that uh, you see of, of towns prior to, um, to the, the Great War and after it, effectively you can't recognise a single building in there. You know, there's barely two bricks holding itself together as a destruction and the yeah. number of shells that yeah. Uh, yeah. It lands so- on these villages and towns throughout this whole area.
1: So we've got this very wet, very gluggy, mushy sort of landscape. And we're going to try, as New Zealanders, to get up on the ridge. So we've got to cross all this mud. Uh, 2,000 people, plus their guns, plus their cannons, uh, everything else that they're taking. Yep. horses, the whole hog, yep. everything has got across the mud. Yep. Yep. We're not going to do it, are we?
0: No, we're not. And the, the 12th of October is the, is known as the deadliest day, but if we go back to the to the 4th of October, um, actually was the first push up this ridgeline, and they succeeded somewhat um, getting up to an area um, close to the front line. Uh, and, of course, if you realise that Germany had been sitting along this front line for two to three years it had put down masses of barbed wire, it had pillar boxes, it had its artillery um, further back on nice, dry, high land, um, pre sighted into all these areas. So um, the first push was on the 4th of October, reasonably successful. Um, However, the closer you got to the front line, the boggier and the muddier it got, that slowed you down. So when the push was made on the um, 12th of October, Um, which was to take, effectively, the German front line. The goal of the Kiwis was never to take Passchendaele. Um, It had a series of engagements, so they talk about um, uh, taking a bite, bite and hold, a bit like eating an apple. You take a bite, you hold it, and then you take another bite. And this is how they kind of crept up the front lines. Um, But on the 12th of October um, was the day that the Kiwis were asked to make this big push, Um, and it was doomed from the start. So if we think about the artillery, artillery is used for a number of things. One of it is you throw it on the German front front line, keeps the troops down, so they don't man their machine guns and everything like that. Um, The second thing you use it for is actually to blast away the barbed wire, because in front of the the trenches, there's just masses of barbed wire. And it's not just a single um, uh, line of it. It might be multiple lines. It might be 20 or 30 metres deep of barbed wire. And um, artillery is used, you know, to blow that away so your troops can go through. Unfortunately, when the artillery, A, can't be moved forward because of the mud and your horses can't move,
1: No. B, no.
0: when you finally get your piece of artillery to a spot, because it's so muddy, every time you fire it, it comes off its platform. So you have to resight it. You need to re-level it, um it. Otherwise, you've got no idea where you're firing. So you had these issues as well. They also had problems with actually just getting ammunition up to the uh, the artillery, so there was no there was a shortage of artillery um shells because they couldn 't get it through the horses in the, the and through the mud to supply the um artillery and then the worst thing is that actually if you fired the artillery um only about one and two shells actually went off because they just went they were duds they went into the mud they didn 't fire and if they exploded, all they did was put up a little plume of Poof. mud yeah. so um, it was it was a, a, a fair to be no artillery you were just literally walking into a hail of, uh, of bullets um,
1: you said uh, and it's a line that I quite like because it's very descriptive and, and it's kind of sad to say I like this line however it sums it up that the mud was the silent killer mm. yeah I, I think that's a that's a very descriptive Line yep. for people, particularly, have seen any of these yep. photos yep. of the yep. time. Our men, we lost a lot of men that day.
0: We lost on that uh, within four hours. the The push started at around about six in the morning. Mm. Um, little as a little artillery support, uh, effectively, uh, it was called off before midday. And by that time, eight hundred forty three. Um, had had lost their lives, yeah. and you're talking, uh, you know, so that's a huge number of um, of soldiers in any one engagement. It is uh, when you're thinking Gallipoli over f- over nearly nine months, we lost two thousand seven hundred dead, and we lost eight hundred forty three
1: in four hours. In four hours,
0: and yeah. the the problems being is that they struggled to move forward. Um, they were picked off very easily because they had little cover. Uh, and nowhere to go and nowhere to go and the Germans had been quite cunning in the wire that actually left gaps in the wire so the soldiers went for those gaps in the wire because they hadn't been blind, but they'd already been pre-sided with machine guns so as the soldiers came towards these gaps in the wire if they could get there um they were just picked off right on the front line so um it was as I say a total recipe for for disaster and if you got wounded, then the chances of being recovered, um, re, you know, strongly reduced because it took um, stretcher bearers. Normally, each stretcher bearer had four people on it. It normally took at least two stretcher bearer crews per wounded to get them off the battlefield. And they're still clearing them off the battlefield two and a half to three days later. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the that had survived.
1: Lots and lots yep. of wounded yep. soldiers. Yes,
0: two thousand wounded. Two thousand uh, wounded. 130 odd of those died within a few days of their wounds engaged. So you're talking nearly 900 plus uh, by direct result of that push up that ridge line yeah. on that day.
1: Yeah, four hours. It's no wonder we call it our deadliest day. Yep, yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. It just, you know, it's more than probably we've lost in natural disasters. Um, it's nearly three times what we lost in Erebus. Uh, you know it's four times five times what we lost in the, in the Napier earthquake uh, sorry in Christchurch it's just yep yeah. Mind-boggling.
1: It is mind-boggling. And the circumstances under which those poor people had to supposedly fight their battle was just against them from the start, wasn't it? And
0: and it was due to a uh, number of generals that once they may have mindsets, they were very hard to take off that uh, mindset. They were going to do it at any kind of cost. And I suppose one of the things you need to consider is that most of the officers in the English um, uh, army uh, were probably from that middle to high class. All the soldiers were, you know, so they had this class system that really didn't put much value as much on the lives of effectively the grunt soldier. On the workers, on the (laughs) poor one who had to carry the... um, yeah. These, um,
1: but that changed, didn't it? After this yes. particular yep. incident where yep. New Zealanders were just sent into yep. a situation that was never going to work. Yep. The the chain of command, if you like, changed
0: Correct. for the New yep.
1: Zealanders yep. and they yep. did not yep. have to go yep. through the British
0: Absolutely. again. Yeah. Effectively up to this point, effectively we uh took most of our orders um from the British High Command. Uh but after this, effectively the New Zealand government said that our generals on the ground could override any um, any order they thought was not a you know was just basically suicide. I suppose for a bit be- yes. word and um, and that kind of helped change the 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 way forward in terms of of losses and and this kind of crazy um, yeah. charges on front lines.
1: Yes, it's not heroic to have this kind of a battle, is it? No. You, I said in my intro that you've been over to that area. Yeah. I, I want to talk about what happened after the battle. Yeah. After the battle in the 1920s, Chinese workers were sent in to recover as many bodies as possible. That was a surprise to me, that mm. Chinese
0: were mm. used for yeah. that. And if you think, um, there's, you know, like, for example, there are Chinese labourers throughout the world. You know, where Chinese Labour is in Otago, in the gold yep, mines, did. And, and everywhere. Um, so what happened uh, and during the battles was that uh, if they had wounded, then they would make small um, battlefield graves, and it might be 10 or 12 people in there, um, of those who they could collect. After the war, there was a decision made, um, after the creation of the um, Commonwealth war, war, war Graves Commission, to actually concentrate more of these... Uh, cemeteries right, around about two hundred odd in this area, so the the the, uh, the bodies were collected and they were put onto, to uh, effectively put into large cemeteries and close to this battle is the largest uh, cemetery uh, carrying um, Allied soldiers, which is Tynecott. it has twelve thousand um, headstones in there, but only three thousand eight hundred actually have a name on it. all the others are actually got uh, are known sol- as soldiers, but do not have a name. They could not be identified. Even worse than that, there's thirty five thousand names on a wall around the cemetery of those soldiers who were known to have been killed, but have gone on, haven't got a grave. Were never yeah. recovered. Yeah. And this is one of uh, about four different areas where, um, for example, Kiwi soldiers have got names on the on this wall. Uh that uh, were known to be killed in the battle or were battles, never recovered. However, they're commemorated on that um, on that wall.
1: I would imagine standing there and looking at all that would be very poignant, mm. um, almost depressing. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how I would feel standing, yep. looking at a wall with 35,000 names on it of people who haven't got a grave.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you it's think so no- sad, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and um, in Ypres, there's known as the Men Gate that has over fifty thousand oh, yes. names on yes. that on that uh, on that on the walls of that gate. Um, the interesting thing is that when they recover someone and they're still recovering bodies today, um, they they actually identify about one and two, and if they're identified, um, their name is removed from the wall. Or wherever it may be, yeah. um, and they're given a proper military burial with a named headstone.
1: Yeah, I think that's quite nice, yep. isn't it? Yep. And I suppose with DNA these days, mm. I, I guess yep. somewhere there must be a DNA yep. bank yes, of, there yep. Yep. of of people whose relatives went yep. to war, yep. that, that yep. maybe and they can be matched up somewhere. Absolutely,
0: somehow. and the ability then to uh, research and have so much stuff online um, to be able to find out what unit maybe was in that area on, at one time, so the ability to actually identify. Um, but it's over. I, I understand it's but more than one a week soldiers actually removed out of those battlefields still around belt in that area, of Flanders, and given a military. I was area. just going
1: to ask that it's ongoing, isn't it? it? Is on, I suppose yeah. when you think of the mud, the mud and the way the soil shifts.
0: Mm. And
1: then bone yep. is going to come to the surface eventually. Yep.
0: Yep. It's That uh, contraction of uh, in the winter when things freeze mm. it pushes things up eventually, and they're still you know they're picking up armaments um, off the top of off, of this, uh, the French um, French and Belgium uh, fields all the time, known as the Iron Harvest.
1: You you would have been to quite a few museums as well as mm, grave yep. sites. So the museums will be chocker with all this stuff. Yes,
0: the, and there was a brilliant one right on the um, right at Passchendaele, at a what was a chateau pretty much on the front line, and it's probably one of the well uh, the best kind of uh, museums throughout that whole area. Are you no. going
1: back? I mean, I know that because of COVID, we're a yep. little bit isolated down oh, yes. here. Yep. But at yep. some stages, there were plans to oh, go yes, back. There's, there's back still back. more research it's, to do. Oh,
0: absolutely, there's still plenty to do, and. Um, plenty to visit.
1: And yet more interviews to do on Radio Kidnappers Thank you Phil Crombie from the Rotary Club of Ahuriri Sunrise for being my guest on Rotary Wheels Should you wish to follow in Phil's footsteps and carry out World War One research, it has never been as easy or as comprehensive as it is today Google searches, local libraries museums, all have plenty of avenues for you to explore To find out more about Rotary in your local community, a a Google search will provide hours of information, or simply start by a search for Ahariri Sunrise. Please join me every Monday morning at 10 o'clock to meet another interesting Rotarian from your local community. I'm Lynn Trafford.